Welcome to Book Wandering with me, Anna James, the podcast where I talk to another writer about their most beloved children's or YA book. I'm the author of the children's fantasy series Pages & Co and an arts journalist, and this week I'm joined by Gabrielle Zevin. Gabrielle is the author of several books, including Elsewhere, The Storied Life of AJ Fickrey, and of course, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. Gabrielle and I met when I chaired her UK launch event for Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow at Waterstones Piccadilly, which has gone on to deservedly be a huge bestseller and is one of my absolute favourite books of last year. So I was delighted to speak with Gabrielle about the book of her choice, the 1905 children's classic, A Little Princess by Frances Hodgson Burnett. And before we get into the episode, just to quickly note that while the podcast is largely suitable for children, this isn't geared at younger listeners. Uh, so welcome, Gabrielle. Thank you so much for coming on uh, Book Wandering uh, to talk about A Little Princess. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, so I guess before we get into it, I would just love to hear about your relationship with the book in terms of, can you remember when you first picked it up and how old you were, how you felt about it, what, like when you first discovered it? I was probably a little younger than Sarah Crew. So, <laughs> so I think, I, or maybe even about her age, I think I was about six years old when I read it, you know? And I already related to her a great deal because I was bookish and dark. And I think basically the book is a fantasy for all bookish, dark girls. Yes. Um, <laughs> and also she was a character with such a rich internal life. Um, and I think what I related to maybe most of all was kind of even at six, that struggle to be good, you know, and that that and the way she kind of picks up princessing as a kind of game you can play or a role you can act. And that leads her to becoming a better person, you know. And so um, just all of those things. I think also the fact that, you know, storytelling is treated like such a, a rich thing that will attract right. friends to you, you know, which, of course, it does now. <laughs> <laughs> maybe when this was written it, it did like there's that scene in the book where you know they're all gathered around and she's like it's such a wonderful gift to know uh, you know a great storyteller and I was thinking well these are clearly people that don't have smartphones or access to streaming because <laughs> I, you know we are not you and I are not as great gifts as we would have been probably in you know the 18 the 1800s I think it's first published in the 1900 the early 1900s this but but yeah <laughs> Sadly for us, I think you might be right. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> They're like, you know, Sarah is weird. She's rich, but but boy, she can spin a story. So we're just going to embrace her as as our friend, you know, <laughs> was not it an is... experience I've had in my lifetime. You know, <laughs> no, it is fascinating, isn't it? Seeing how the other girls respond to her. And just like you're saying about she's such a, an interesting mix of almost absurdly good whilst also at points obviously as you say using this princess thing there's a bit where she's just quite casually like I could quite easily kill Miss Minchin uh, but I will never be vulgar and you're just like wow Sarah right That's like if quite... she didn't have this role to like play like what would happen like her whole personality she might just it might be an entirely different book where this one girl like murders everyone at a school <laughs> you know? yeah seeks revenge right. on everyone that's wronged her which I would it could actually, really I turn that, that way it could turn that way in the story at a certain point and she wouldn't be wrong to want to basically kill everyone there you know I think it's like basically it's terrible but yeah but I, I do think that um, 
again, the book is so much, and I think why it resonates with me and has resonated with me throughout my life is because it is so much about the power of like one's internal life and one's imagination to overcome right. circumstance. You know, I, I feel like that is a message that holds up <laughs> for sure. Yes. Some of it dates very well in terms of that <laughs> core message. Um, and you mentioned that why it's resonated with you. So I'm curious as to say you discovered it as a child. Is it a book you have come back to? When was the last time you kind of reread it? Basically, is it something you've kind of revisited and re-evaluated kind of gradually? Or did you have a sort of childhood memory of it and then read it a bit more abruptly as an adult? No, I read it multiple times um, because back then, and this is a side point, you know, I you did a lot more rereading because there weren't sort of wasn't access to like every single book in the right. world all of the time. And so if you found one you liked, you might read it like a dozen times or something. So as a kid, yes. I, pro I probably did read it a dozen times. And then I think... Um, you know, there was a really beautiful edition of the book that I had that was at my parents' home. So I think I read it like when I came home from college once. And then like sure. 20 years later, I don't think I've read it for about 20 years, you know, but when, okay. you, when you mentioned it, like you were thinking about doing this podcast, I was like, I feel like rereading that again, because it was so important to me. And of course, there've been so many like film adaptations and things like that. So of I have course. encountered the story and I was curious to know like what I would find there, you know, when I <laughs> I went back in. Um, and I think just to back up, because I, I know we'll get into it, but I think it's generally a mistake to, to sort of like put the values of 2023 on an author writing, you know, she originally, there's a long story of publication around Little Princess, which I just kind of looked up and discovered. But, you know, when she first starts writing this in 1887, you can't, you know, say like, well, why doesn't she know about like colonialism? <laughs> You know, right. Or why? Or why? Do, why aren't these modern viewpoints on Sarah Crew? I don't really think that's a fault of the book, you know, in, in that sense, you know. It's a tangly one, isn't it? I think especially when you look at children's books, because as adults, we can hold that very easily yeah. in our heads when we come back to it. But then you have the overlapping conversation about how we introduce these stories to modern children who have less of that. Right. Context and can hold those things together. How do we not like pass on its values that are negative, I think, is the thing that is difficult. Um, and I think in the end, you have to have a conversation. You have to ask, you know, of a child. You can't just give them a piece of material and, and say, you know, any piece of material, even when written in 2023, 20, you know, without having a discussion about what's there. Because, you know, if you know, and I have written for children. I know you've written for children. I think that if you only approach writing as like, how is this going to be pedagogical? <laughs> you know, I don't think for like somebody in 2023, that leads to necessarily good storytelling either. You know, I try to hold um, how I can be useful as when I'm writing for children. I haven't done it for a long time, actually. But when I when I'm writing for children, I do try to hold that child in my head. But in a sense, I also have to kind of ignore it. Like you wouldn't get all the good sick stuff of like a raw doll if you were constantly worried about what is the message <laughs> you know, of this book. For you know? sure. For sure. I I agree very much. Actually, I had to tangle specifically with A Little Princess because they literally travel inside of A Little Princess. It's a really important book in the first book of my series. Yeah. Um, and so I really have reread a lot of books from this era because they're the ones that are out of copyright. And it's really interesting well, I was going to ask you about The Secret Garden, obviously, by the same author, because it's it's I would say the colonialism is a lot more yikes in that one. Yeah. Um, 
than this one. Well, I mean, if we were going to be like methodical about it, I think, you know, obviously, I think the two thorniest things and and I actually went and Googled to find out like what were how did people take this material today? And I came across a woman who I thought was going to be like a Gen Z woman, but it turned out she's like an older female fantasy writer. And she has a blog that's called like, let me see, I wrote it down. It is called um, Elpenia. And the author's name is Heather Rose Jones. Did you read any of this? I think this is what also I ended up reading. There's loads of blog actually like reread. Yeah, she has like 36 posts. She kind of goes through it, it, you know. And so it was interesting, you know, her take on it, I think. Like she was worried about the Orientalism, the colonialism, you know, gaps in critique of class, you know, you know, a fat phobia that runs through it. And, you know, the idea that like fat people have lower intelligence. And then she mentioned a variety of plot holes, which, by the way, I think most of the plot holes can be justified. And we, sh- we should probably talk about it by the long, weird adaptation process it went through to become sure. the, the a little princess that we know today. You know, and I, I actually enjoyed reading her her thoughts about it but i think it's an an almost impossible standard to hold this like little piece of material (laughs) to in a way you know yeah for sure well perhaps talking about how it kind of came to be is a good place to start go back to yeah uh, in terms of because people listening might not be aware that it wasn't just sort of written straight as a book. So I think we've probably been reading the same blogs and yeah, articles I think we before have. we chat. But um, do you want to give us like an overview I can. of how it came it's to actually, be? I had to read it several times to really even grasp it because it has such a complicated right. process around its like intellectual property. And we think IP has strange lives today, but in fact, this had a really weird life. So I think she first kind of um, writes it as, as a short story that's called like Sarah Crew or What Happened at Miss Minchin's, yeah. <laughs> which is not as great a title as A Little Princess. And this is For serialized sure. in, around like December of 1887. And then it's published in a book form somewhere, I think. And then they adapt that into a play called A Little Unfairy Princess based on yeah. that story. And then the, <laughs> the publisher then ha- asks her, which I think is Scribner in the U.S., asks her to expand the story into a novel and put all the things she left out of the play. And I think sometimes, by the way, you feel the plainness of it in terms of its one location and all of that in, yeah. in the novel that results. And then finally, this is the novel we know, which is called A Little Princess, original title being the whole story of Sarah Crew now being told for the first time. <laughs> I yes. think. That that's what I grasped from reading it. But that's not about it. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's a lot. So, and I feel like you see that sometimes, both in you know, I think the fact that it is largely in this one location. You know, you feel that in the way, kind of, it feels like nobody really ages. You know, in that, uh, you know. So, I think there are certain ways you feel the plainness of it in it. Um, but that said, I think the material holds up remarkably well for all this process. And I think, you know, I was talking to my partner about it. I think the process was more common than like something like The Wizard of Oz. Also, was like a play into books, back into plays, back into movies. You know, like so there was more of this play with IP. Like it could kind of just transform and be anything. You know, um, yeah. at any time. It's interesting what you say about time, though, isn't it? Because it's sort of it's reading it back my memory of it was it happens over quite a short period of time but it happens over a really long period of time you just casually get and then two years later this happened and now Lavinia is 16 and it's like 
It, well, it's, it's a weird big chunk of time. She is like, what? Is she six or seven at the beginning? She's seven at the beginning. She's seven. And she's a very mature seven. Like, she feels... Yes. Very, but I think <laughs> she's that basically so. she's been acting as her father's wife, the little missus, yes. for some time. Yes. And <laughs> Which, that's another one, actually, another where you thing. just yeah. can't put the 2023 mindset on it because obviously it's supposed to be a beautiful relationship right and Uh, like from 2020 it feels a little like hmm you know they like she describes it and i know the language is not the same is that they are the best of lovers and friends yeah (laughs) her and her dad you know and her handsome petting father is the way And I get it. I actually think there's still truth to it from today. Like the fact that she is a girl without a mother and they have a very like intimate relationship. I don't actually think there's probably anything creepy about it, except the terminology is. I agree. Certainly strange from today's today's years. But yeah, like I she ages from seven to I think she's probably 12 or 13 at the end of the story. So it actually does take place over six years. And like, in a sense, you know, she's remarkably mature at the beginning of the story. And and seems to stay in about that place. Maybe she's just an old soul <laughs> or yeah. something like that. <laughs> yeah, I picture her the whole way through the book as sort of 11 and I found it a bit jarring. I was like, oh, she's seven. But like you say, she is an unusually, unusually precocious seven-year-old. Well, the only thing that's crazy about her being seven is like you're kind of, you know, the dolls, right? <laughs> I'm like, she seems even at the beginning like somebody who is too mature to have a doll. And I know like the doll, and I actually like a lot of the stuff around the dolls. And, you know, I think it's a great moment in the book where she realizes the limitation of dolls and she like kind of right. like, throws Emily against the wall. Yeah. Emily is the doll. <laughs> yes. For people who are not familiar right. with And I, yes. you know, it's actually such a dramatic moment in the book when that happens because, you know, you're like, this is her only possession at this point. You know, it's like, that's the only tie to her life, you know? So I find it very effective when that happens. It's like her basically the lowest of lows. It's like a good screenplay. You know, she's really just like she's given up on the power of, you know, her imagination to solve problems as represented by this doll Emily. But then, you know, when we get to the part of the story just before everything terrible happens, you know, she's gotten the last doll, you know, and I was like, was there a doll every year? Was there? Are there like six dolls in her room is the thing I kind of found myself asking at that point, you know? Yeah, getting kind of progressively bigger and more extravagant. Wait, she has opera glasses. Is is the thing I always remembered. (laughs) It's it. They're they're quite something. The dolls, and again, as you say, there is there is, isn't there? There is a proper horror novel in this book. Right, there's a whole other novel that has exactly the same parameters. Girl gets sent to boarding school with a (laughs) weirdly attached relationship to her father. You know, it's like a movie like you know, Midsummer. Yeah, yeah. I think we should probably just write this movie, Anna. Like, now we have it, you know? (laughs) For sure. I mean, I would watch that. Although, speaking of the movie, one slightly disconcerting experience I've had with using the book is I have realized that quite a lot of people, basically in the film, Sarah's dad is miraculously alive. Right. But in the book, he is not. Yes. And I have been the one that has, like, children have realized that because they read my book. <laughs> and it's I an unexpectedly disturbing thing that's come about just casually. And some of my friends, one of my best friends, has seen the film and hadn't read the book. And she just smooched them together, read my book, and was like, but you killed him. I was like, I, I didn't kill him. 
Like, right. Francis killed it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it comes he's, he's from definitely so dead. The, the dead father, I believe, comes from the original, like, not the original, but the Shirley Temple movie version of it was when they introduced, like, the Hollywood version introduced the dead father, you know, that comes, I mean, the alive, the living father who comes yes. back, you know. <laughs> but I find it, like, really weird. Um, I think I had read the book before I had seen any of the films. There was, like, a PBS version that I watched before, like, the Shirley Temple version, which, right. like, she doesn't feel old enough or sophisticated enough to be Sarah okay. Crew to me, you know, but I haven't seen that one. But no, I'm saying like Shirley Temple doesn't feel old or sophisticated oh, enough yeah. to be. She seems like a like really a child. I'm like, I don't I don't believe you can mother somebody else or like all of the kind right. of things she does. And it doesn't I don't know that Shirley Temple comes off as somebody who has a rich inner life in a, in a certain <laughs> way. She comes off like somebody who's about to go tap dance with a servant or something like that, but not necessarily <laughs> somebody who is, you know, I don't know, imagining her way out of her circumstances. But right. But yeah. So and then they adapt from that for like the Alfonso Coran version. Mm-hmm. They use the father. So I think and that version is quite good. But I don't like I don't really like when they do it that way, because I think it's just so strange. The idea like that the father's got this kind of like amnesia, but he's so nearby and like it's a lot to ask. I think the, the construction that they have um, is better, you know, that the, the construction that Francis Francis Hogson Burnett. Do we know how to say her name? Is it Burnett? Is she Burnet? I mean, I've always said Burnett, but that is, I have no real information about that. <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't there. There wasn't like, we couldn't go to YouTube and be like, hi, I'm Francis Hogson Burnett introducing my novel, you know, or whatever it is. And like in the modern way where you figure out how people pronounce their names. But but yeah, anyway, like I prefer the way she has the original version of the strange friend who feels great guilt, you know, <laughs> and that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Captain Crew is generally just a curious character as well. You know, he he happily will sit down and be like, oh, your father's terrible with money. I'm such a, I'm such right. a fool. And he's just like very, he's such a curious character, so young and sort of silly and romantic and not really a traditional father figure in kind of books of this from this era I don't know I mean I'm curious how old do you think Captain Crew is he feels like he's in his (laughs) 20s right I think he must be he's not even like in his 30s is my point he's just like a glamorous kind of like you know guy not suited for actual life in any way or possibly even raising a child you know right he seems sort of playful and even like i don't know maybe stunted in some way but on that same blog that we both read um like elpenia she talks about like how much money does captain crew have you know which i think is a really interesting way where did it come from right and she concludes that basically he is um from old money has to be because he's so bad at figuring out how to manage it. And it doesn't he doesn't seem like a guy who's would have been able to manage his own fortune, but that weirdly she found it inconsistent that he behaves like nouveau riche. But I actually don't think he behaves like nouveau riche. What did you think? I think I read that blog and I didn't really kind of come to any conclusions because like you say, neither one quite fits because the issue as well with the old money is that there's no family right. to take care. There's no people 
There's absolutely we're given absolutely zero information. Right, he seems about like he exists in a vacuum. In India. Like, how can yeah. there be nobody who cares what happens to this child? Like, how is he so very alone in the world? Right. You know, and you know, I guess like inconsistency is they point out that the way she's founded about Miss Minchin School is through like this particular like woman, but right, then a that friend, yeah, like Miss something. I forget what her name is, but you know, yeah. then basically she, uh, this same woman, like is never like counseled upon such time as everybody upon such time as Sarah becomes like somebody with no money and no family whatsoever nobody reaches out to to that woman it doesn't seem to be on their radar to do or Sarah's mother's French family like her mother they're half like she's so very alone in the world and in a really strange way um that doesn't necessarily feels like it makes a great deal of sense unless you sort of take the story as much more of a fairy story or something than than it is you know but I I think like you know it didn't really bother me I didn't think he seemed like nouveau riche I assumed old money but like you say he should then have more relations you know um because like I think like the spending he does all the lavish spending it's obviously to like expiate his guilt about leaving his daughter and at boarding school and also the death of her mother and just he's feeling terrible so he spends a lot of money i don't think he necessarily spends a lot of money in every aspect of his life except basically on his daughter and with his friend in the diamond mines like that he has put all of his fortune in the diamond mines yikes is nuts yeah. you know it it truly it truly is <laughs> and i mean those uh well let's come to let's let's talk about the diamond mines because of course for a book that has quite a clear moral message in many ways uh obviously as you say the time this was written the fact that sarah's fortune sarah's fortune uh <laughs> comes from these <laughs> very romanticized uh you know i think at one point sarah even sort of has a little romantic daydream about you know oh the body's toiling away in the dark right. for her and you're just like hey, cool right. there's no thought like sarah is not somebody she's a wonderful person in many ways but she's not thinking about labor she's not thinking about the ethics of mining diamonds she's it's not right. these are not of on her course. radar you know they're really not on the book's radar you know no. uh, although i think like even though the diamond mines work out in the end i maybe i think they for a long time, they do not work out in the story. So I don't know that like we can necessarily read that she has no indictment about diamond mines. <laughs> you know, like that's that they're bad, first of all like good like sense of investment point. or anything like that. You know, but in the end, she ends up like rich beyond her wildest dreams from the diamond mines, I guess, with no thought to the labor whose diamonds they are or like anything like anything like that at all. You know, or, or like how she is managing these. Like if they're her fortune, like is she is she gonna be required to like manage them at some point like it's uh yes but as you say it's not a concern of of the book um they're they're ridiculous in many ways and there's yes these two young men who are just these apparently two how i read them kind of both as if it wasn't so tragic it would almost say and (laughs) tragic and colonialist uh these sort of it's almost like a romp of these two young handsome men spending all their money on diamonds and then getting what they call jungle fever. Right. I mean, it's actually like, quite weird. Just all happening the... in the background. Right. <laughs> that they all call that they call the friend the Indian gentleman when he is not Indian at all. Like, I, like it's weird yeah. that that becomes the way he's referred. He's just a white guy who went to eat. Right. <laughs> right. Know? Right. It's really, and they just they maintain that it's. It made me realize, I think as a child, I 100% imagined that character as an actual Indian man. Right. Um, 
<laughs> and then you're like, no, he's not, because there is an actual Indian man. Right. <laughs> he has a name, but this is like who is not Indian referred gentleman. to as the Indian, Indian gentleman. It's <laughs> really strange. You know, it's yes. weird that everybody picks up on that. Like just because I guess the, of the furniture when it's arriving, or I'm not even sure if he has like darker skin because of like having been out in the fields a lot. I'm not sure why they call him the well, Indian gentleman. They- when they catch a glimpse, they actually talk about how he has yellow skin. Right, because, because of having, right, the, like, whatever he's, he's got. Ill. He has, like, yes. yeah, the, the, the well, fever. Well, they call it the brain fever. fever. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> They've got, yeah. Um, so I Which guess seems that's to be why brought when, on by Matt by inadvised <laughs> investments. <laughs> because he's not um, really, like, yellow wouldn't lead you to, like, think he was Indian. So all I thought was maybe, like, the elaborate furniture that, that comes out. I think out. that is it. I think that's what they're, what she's going on. Um, right. Because are we in Sarah's head? Because also the, one of the other things that really struck me reading the book back now is the absolute wild shifts in perspective that oh, we get. Yeah. Like we're mainly in Sarah's head for most of it and we hear how she's feeling. But with no, we're just randomly get a paragraph where we're just with Miss Minchin right. or just somewhere else. And it just, hoiks you there and hoiks you back there's no like change in perspective and again i think that perhaps is a hangover from the fact that the form it went through a few forms but it's quite jarring at times to it there's no consistency with the perspective you're at and suddenly you realize you're seeing something that sarah's not there and you're not sure when if there's an opinion about something you're not sure whose opinion you're being given uh, right. It's like she doesn't necessarily. And again, I think largely the book works really well. I think it's very well constructed overall. Yeah. Um, but I will say that it sometimes feels as if um, she did not realize that she would go into different points of view at the head of the story, you know, that we would be close right. with Sarah the whole time. And then, you know, like you said, all of a sudden we're with Miss Minchin, you know, or we're with, you know, the Indian gentleman. <laughs> right. <laughs> or Ram Das. I think that's how how we say Ram Das. I'm not sure, but I, I think, think so. so. I'm going to go with that. Yeah. Um yeah, and like the Ram Das character is fascinating. He's obviously problematic in that he's a kind of a magical Indian gentleman, you know. Yeah, he reminded me actually the way, you know, have you seen uh Annie, the yeah. the character Punjab in that is very <laughs> that like kind mystical uh character that is very uncomfortable it was very much it's interesting because obviously very much presented as a positive it's a positive character they're a hero and they're presented in through the lens of the time and very favorably but watching it or reading it from now yeah it seems like he is also like it's very difficult to pin him down i feel like he has different functions throughout the story right but one of the things is that he speaks hindi with sarah like the first time they meet and i'm like you yes. never go and mention that to your <laughs> your boss downstairs you know it seems like very odd that omission you know i actually think there's a little bit of an inconsistency because i think soon after that the the children from the large family it says something about oh the stories he could right, tell he them can't if they tell if he could speak english but then he's just speaking english <laughs> later it seems like he is very inconsistent he's whatever like she he is magical as a character for you know francis hodson burnett because yes you know basically whatever she needs him to be at any moment is what he does you know and and we won't talk about whether practically speaking you can get like through like a glass roof (laughs) 
I don't know what you're picturing, like the entry into the into Sarah's attic room to redecorate, like to do extreme makeover in there, you know, but it's amazing. It's like including apparently changing her very bed whilst she is sleeping. While she's sleeping. <laughs> Um, but it's funny when you said he's hard to pin down. I had actually written down is partly because he is so what's um, the help of agile, so- the agile, soft footed Oriental is how he is described. That's apparently how he is getting all this furniture. Well, and the then there's the other part where they're like only somebody like Ram Das could have come up with a plan like this, which is straight <laughs> out of like, you know, Arabian Nights. <laughs> you know, it it, it does. The whole, as we've said, it has a Faberly fairy tale feel, but the um the makeover uh, of the the room whilst she's sleeping really, and then he's like bringing hot meals across the roof he every is, day like, as I'm well. Like, I'm hoping the roof will hold. You know, he's lighting fires in there. He's doing so many things going through this roof, which is just, it's like insane to really think about the logistics of what what that would be. But it's magical. Like I still yeah. find that part very magical when it happens. You know. Um, but yeah, practically speaking, it seems like it would be a hard miracle to pull off, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you really can't interrogate the logistics of that one too much, because I think some of the plot stuff you can kind of talk around and think, well, this is probably the theory, but I think that's one that has to be just popped in the little category of it is with a a capital M. It's like, I think the novel is kind of like magical too. And so a thing I love about it is the same thing, which is that all the magic actually is real. You know, there's nothing in it that doesn't come from like somebody coming up with a plan, somebody else like thinking really hard about how to do something. And I think that feels, um, you know, you never get to the point in this story where it's like, cause magic, you know, (laughs) or something, you know. It's a real life magic. Rather than, yes, fantasy magic, that feels like an awkward way of uh, differentiating. (laughs) But yes, it's all, um, even if it tests at the limits of realism and loves a coincidence, then uh, (laughs) poor old, what's his name, Mr. He's not really called Mr. Montmorency, that's what Sarah calls him. But, you know, he gets sent off to Russia (laughs) to to look for her. (laughs) He did. And apparently his stay is just like prolonged and prolonged. And then he rushes back to to tell the family that, you know, we're all, that they, he could not find, you know, the little girl. She was called coincidentally Emily, like the doll, Carew, which seems yeah. very close, you know, to to Sarah Crew. But also in the time of, speaking of the time scale of the book, like with the travel options, like he must have been gone for so long to go to Moscow to look He must for have been gone for so long. And it's weird that again, in the like circle of solicitors that nobody contacts like <laughs> Sarah's father's lawyer, who's the one that comes to deliver the hammer that she is now a pauper and will, you know, have to, you know, I guess be a servant girl forever. You know, yeah, that nobody... Maybe- like lawyers are terrible. <laughs> I was gonna say maybe it's all his fault because he's awful. He's just like it is not my problem. No one's paid my bills. Maybe he was corrupt from the start, and that explains why no one knows who their family, who her family is, because <laughs> he actually like did. He, he just have does not care. Some information about about the situation, about where to put Sarah. Even like say the fact that they're all alumni of Eaton. <laughs> seems like that right. that could lead to some people that might like care at all about what happens to this child. Yes. You know? Or even the business partner, even if they don't know what's that like, he presumably has a rich English family who maybe feel might right. be impressed upon to 
solve the problem. It's, it's weird. Uh, like, so did they have no other friends in college except each other? Because somebody might have known like some things about like, you know, I think his name's Rolf. Is he Rolf Crew? Rolf Crew's daughter, you know, and like where she is or something like that. But it's actually right. like it's, it really seems like it's a wonderful mystery to everyone about like how and, and I and I get it too. It's not like he can Google it, like Sarah Crew sure. boarding school, <laughs> something, you know. It's you know, talk about the the horror book underneath the surface. I'd also there's maybe a um I don't know if I'm over <laughs> you know, like a gently maybe a queer coded <laughs> story about <laughs> Ralph Crew and his friend and like why are they only are friends with each other and why what they're doing and buying all these diamond mines and I don't know. Right, it seems end. like that's possible, you know. Um it, you know, it's funny, I think like the villains in the story are pretty appealing also. Like to <laughs> just to think about like the Miss Minchin character. I don't know how you experience her, but I think she's a, a great villain. Like because I feel For like sure. all of the things she says is are justified by you know the fact that she needs to run her business basically you know <laughs> and she just doesn't like sarah you know yes which i actually found very liberating as a child that yes there were some <laughs> adults that were not going to respond to you that adults were not like perfect like you know moral beings and fair like she never liked sarah at least she's consistent in that even though she pretends but it's not like sarah really believes it ever that miss minchin likes her you know right for sure we talked quite a lot about the differences between reading it as a child and as an adult. I find very different bits, like, sad as well and tragic. I think as a child, I actually didn't find it. It's, it seems so fairy tale almost, mm -hmm. the idea of Sarah's dad dying. I think I was less affected by than I am when I read it as an adult in the way that, like, when I reread Anne of Green Gables, it really makes me cry the way that Matthew and Marilla think about her in a way that just didn't didn't affect me as a child. How like do you remember what kind of got to you emotionally, sadness wise, and has that shifted? Well, you know, I think she has a really interesting depiction of grief. You know, when she shows, I think those scenes are particularly well written in the book. When how a sort of intellectual person who is again she's not an extrovert Sarah she is a storyteller but not an extrovert she's very convincingly written as as a writer you know yeah we think at a certain point she's probably going to write a novel you know? yeah <laughs> that's where sure. that's where this life is headed you know and <laughs> yes. I feel like the way she like depicts her um it just and it's something Becky observes that she's a person who needs to be left alone like she mm -hmm. Becky intuits the fact that she needs some space to kind of process this and it's, you know, she has to even kind of keep saying the words to herself that, you know, her father is dead, you know, mm. Papa is dead. And it like takes her a while to get it. And I think, again, the depiction seems really specific and not a way that I've ever really seen um, a child grieving. I think it's a great it's a it's a really wonderful part of the book, actually. You know, and mm. I think it's it's cool that you mentioned it, you know, but for me, um, uh, I think uh you know, it's funny. I feel like in a sense, like reading it again, I was thrown back to being a child who read in a more simplistic way. Like I didn't feel like I was having complicated. I didn't feel a desire to interrogate the material, if you know what I right. mean. And oh, so that's sure. why like I, and so I just kind of gave myself over to it, even though some things are obvious, like, you know, the Ram Dass character, as we just discussed or something like that. I just felt like wanting to you know, be in that world and give myself over to it in that way, um, as opposed to say, like, you know, so in a sense, I do find that like, you know, some books you read, 
and it's almost like a time travel. You know, it kind of can throw you back to the time and place and the person you were when you first read it. And it's interesting because mm-hmm. you know that the book is, and, and some books you read and um, you're aware of the fact that you are very changed from the person you were as a child, you know. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I think um, in terms of the things I think the book does really well, it's, I think, depicting the inner life of an intellectual child. You know, mm-hmm. she's even Sarah versus, you know, because you talked about her versus Anne, Anne of Green Gables is a really interesting comparison. <laughs> you know, I think Anne is so much more. She is a, both, you know, they're both kind of like young writers in a sense, very dreamy and, yeah. you know, outward, I think, uh, in that sense. But like, I think the thing about Sarah that resonates with me and there's two aspects to that is that she is so internal you know, uh, and that it, and that is just the thing I go back to over and over again, the way that she's a person who processes the world by thinking hard about it and seeing like where she can improve herself. And I think Anne, Anne's fantasies are seem more generously shared among everybody. <laughs> you know, people are kind of rec- like, we'll all call this, you know, you know, whatever, like the all her names for the places in the town yeah. you know, or, or that kind of thing. Like we're all going to participate in Anne's fantasy, you know, and it's so it's different in that sense. I think she's less separate from everyone else. And and the second thing is, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but, you know, I had only ever I had this experience with the Anne of Green Gables series where I would only kind of ever read to about as old as I was. And then her life seemed like it had no application to me. And so I didn't actually read all, you know, eight going up to Rainbow Valley until um, I was an adult. And so in a way, Sarah exists for me in a world of complete possibility versus I know Anne does not write a novel. I know that she does get married. You know, I know that she has children. I know what happens to those children. And so in a sense, like we don't know what will happen for Sarah Crew, you know. Mm -hmm. And so she exists in a different place in my mind that is less final than what a series, (laughs) the the demands of the series do to Anne, you know. I actually willfully only ever reread the first Anne book. I read the whole series as a child and have never read the whole series again, but I have reread <laughs> the first book more than almost any book probably. So that's my way of dealing with that. I just <laughs> pretend, it, pretend doesn't it doesn't exist. exist. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's funny, uh, like we're not talking about Anne, but I really like the third book where she goes to college. Um, right. Anne of the Island, I think is good. And and the fourth one where she kind of works in the boarding school, like Anne of right. Poplars, you know, so... But again, like, it's not fair to those books, because I think what Ellen Montgomery is, you know, first of all, hers is a much more realist view, you know, of of everything. All of it isn't, you know, this isn't this isn't like, a you know, a a kind of fairy tale or fantasy world, a rags to riches story in that sense. This is more like literary in in that way, you know, the Anne story, but also just again, um, it's not Ellen Montgomery's fault that she writes what is actually a very like real life for a woman mm-hmm. of that era you know mm-hmm. going forward yet i blame her for it i'm like <laughs> right i'm like Anne's so extraordinary can't isn't she going to go do other things but she kind of just settles into being gilbert's a doctor's wife and you know i i get a sense she occasionally writes something for herself you know mm-hmm. or and but there was a part of me as a person you know you know born when i was born that f- struggled with that to like love her at as she got older. So I completely relate um, to to your feelings about it. And so in a sense, again, Sarah exists in this world of like, we don't we don't know what will happen. Like the last scene of the book is her, which we should talk about her going to the bakery. Oh, where the she buns. Is, yeah. Yes. Do you want to describe it? 
<laughs> I am so curious as to what you make of the the two bun scenes uh, <laughs> where she first gives away the buns and then it ends with her going back to the bun shop and the her goodness has inspired the baker to employ the little girl that she has uh that she gave the buns to i must admit honestly it really works on me it's the bit it, it makes it really the the very the first bun scene where she finds the six buns and she gives five of her six buns to the little starving girl like it get it gets to me it really does and i think it's i like the circularity of ending it there and again that real thing of it exists in a romanticized world but the idea that you know being kind it sounds so trite so hard to talk about it without sounding overwhelmingly trite but the idea that being kind and doing the right thing might actually have a knock-on effect right it's it's a nice one for me it's like the three scenes so the two bun scenes we'll talk about those but the first scene is when the Montmorency child, which is not his name, oh, <laughs> gives yeah. her the sixpence, right? He thinks yes. she's a beggar and everybody's like, no, Sarah's not a beggar. And she makes the necklace out of and it. And she makes yeah. the necklace, which is honestly the most hardcore thing she does in the whole book. Like she's starving <laughs> yeah. and she drills a hole into the sixpence <laughs> because otherwise would be to admit that you were in fact actually a beggar. If she, go, she, if she went and spent it on something practical like food, you know, mm-hmm. or something like that. But it, maybe it's also that this is an earlier part of the book where Sarah has not been as tortured you know and she isn't right. as hungry she's still like able to but i mean it's a it's a i mean i don't even know that i would do that if somebody gave me a 20 i'd be like i'm going to like fold it into art and you know because i don't but it just seems like a very extreme move for her to make but i feel like yes. that's the first of those scenes the second of those scenes she's not going to uh save that whatever it's a four pence or whatever forever oh, yeah, she finds you know? the four pence isn't she right. baker she's like yes. nope this is it but the I did find it slightly disingenuous at the beginning of the scene where she asks her, like, did you lose this? Right. Like, right. I'm like, that seems like a little like too good. One like, step because, too far. Because that like, I'm like, what are you leading for? Are you just trying to look re-? like it felt almost like she's signaling goodness to this, you know, baker. But so other than that, though, I find it also very touching. Like, it's crazy to be that hungry and then give five of your buns away, you know? Like it's it is an impressive goodness. move. It's it's actual goodness, right? Yes. Like that person is less, and you know, I think of it, the child me reading it or another child reading it, and it is just it is a wonderful like it's just a wonderful charitable act, you know, in a sense, you know. I think she's, but when we get to the last scene, obviously where she has now been restored to princess, she's still recognized. I think the baker kind of recognizes her, and like the the little girl has now whose name I think is. Do you remember her name? Anne, actually. Anne. Well, they it call her Anne. Anne yes. Uh, because they don't, no one knows what her action is, but she is. Uh, she's actually Anne. She's right. called Anne. Yeah. She has no last name, we are told. She, she has no surname to speak of. She's just Anne. And she's working there. And Sarah asks her, I would like you to, you know, give money, give, give bread to other poor children. You do find yourself wondering, like, how that will actually work out for this baker. Like, will all the, like, children find out that, yeah. you know, this is the place you go to get the free bread, you know? Like, if you kind of play like that practically, you know? And, and it was actually a point that, that Heather Rose Jones made as well, but it was something I had also thought of myself. Um, 
just like where where does it go from here you know it's a lovely <laughs> gesture but it doesn't really exist in the world you know it's just going to become an all sort of like charity bread store or <laughs> one would hope that, that Sarah maybe uses some of her diamond money to like maybe right. help like financially support this baker. But I'm saying, will this will she actually just only deal in bread for like homeless or beggar children at that point? Like, will she be able to sell bread to other people when so many like I don't know if like they'll put out the signal on the street <laughs> that you go to this lady to get the the free bread? You know, I don't know if that is that's what happens from there. But it's such a beautiful thing, and again, it, it's a thing I I think about like you were saying about the sort of construction of those two scenes it's uh and, and the progression of them if you add in also the scene with the sixpence it's really i think it just shows how despite its multiple adaptations this thing really works you know mm -hmm. for sure and actually i think the the middle scene where she finds the fourpence it's striking as well because you are witness to her internal battle she is not like oh immediately i must feed she feed this child who is worse off like she she says it and she understands it and she ma makes herself do the right thing and we hear that she's thinking it through and choosing to do the right thing which yes it's actually very much actual goodness <laughs> as right to, yeah it's the, like is it goodness when it costs you nothing when you just have like tons of meat pie to give to <laughs> becky <laughs> You know, you can just pick up your like like the, her early revelation is like, hmm, you know, maybe Becky would prefer something other than cake. Right. Well, I think Becky is actually, actually really to... generous. It's an empathetic thought that she has yeah. early on. But it costs I think her it's even Becky more later. That points out. She's oh, like, it's not oh, that filling. She's like, this is actually meat pies are great. <laughs> actually, Sarah, just to like put that in there. They're much more filling than cake. Right. And that prompts Sarah to. But she does on take a, it on board. A meat pie buying spree, basically. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, we must talk about Becky. Yes. Um, because she's a curious character who sits slightly strangely, I think, for, from a 2023. <laughs> well, I love the first scene where, like, she basically blows Becky's mind. She's like, we could be each other. <laughs> you know, yeah. Becky's like, what? Right. Like, it's just an accident of. It's again, this is zooming back out again, but the book is so interesting, isn't it? Because it has a mix of Sarah has a real understanding that her life is happy accident in many ways, and yeah. that she has been right. She has a remarkable insight for a pretty yeah. rich girl, <laughs> right? She really understands, like, who's been given everything. That. Maybe it's the death of her mother, you know, like, Perhaps, or something yes. that makes her have, like, I think greater empathy. But yeah, she seems to have remarkable insight into the fact that. It is just an accident of birth that she is who she is and Becky mm -hmm. is who she is, you know. And yet the book sort of makes that explicit and still also has that kind of uh, what Katie did. She's rewarded for being good at the end. And it's sort of it's doing both things, uh, which is not necessarily a, a criti criticism of it, but I found it interesting that it, almost feels like it's trying to have its cake and eat it uh, in terms of that but perhaps again I'm putting too much too much 2023 onto uh, a book that has a lot more awareness of the idea of uh, kind of happy accidents or unhappy accidents than maybe a lot of children's books of the time but Frances Hodgson Burnett has a slightly a, a strange life full of good fortune and bad fortune actually when you were saying about the depiction of grief her she lost her father mm -hmm. very young as well which 
perhaps is why that is such a emotionally resonant and sincere scene because Francis I feel it feels very familiar calling her Francis but she's got a very long name uh, um, yeah <laughs> wait there's a lot to stumble over with that yes. name I think Burnett yeah. must was the married name right was the name of the first husband yes you know? Which she was I didn't divorced realize. twice yeah yeah and the second husband you know he moved in with her before they they were married and the first was husband it seems like it was quite amicable like he consciously i'm sure we've read the same stuff he like yeah. they they did it together like he moved out so that two years later she could say that he deserted her right um, i mean she had a curiously modern life like in right. certain ways like she moves to she was born in england moves to america when she's yeah, four to and the civil war kind of like ruins their like whatever like businesses or whatever and then she has to turn to writing and i'm like well that seems practical she's gonna turn to <laughs> writing things but she turns to writing and that starts paying bills for her and then she marries she divorces like her son is the model for little Lord Fauntleroy, but then that yeah. son dies and the other son almost dies. And yeah. so there's all these things that happen that are quite interesting to her, you know, for her in her life, you know. Certainly unconventional. Well, for any time, really. For any time. Particularly her time. Yeah. And I just think even the the movement of her life. So I think she's the middle of five children or something like right. that. But it's so funny because I, if you read the book, you think she must be an only child. Like the way... <laughs> <laughs> the way she writes Sarah, it's like none of these other people like exist to her, you know, but just to imagine what what like her life must have been like to, you know, to really it's not as common, I think, to be born in, in England and go to America, you know, in that in that era as it is like today to see mm-hmm. these kinds of things. And so I, I think you feel that in the book, like maybe the book feels both British and American in certain ways, which is interesting. You know, it's something I was thinking because I, I really knew nothing about her reading the when I read the book as a kid and like at all, you know, like who yeah, was same. this person and what was her background? Um, but I think there are ways in which it's a peculiarly American narrative. The rags to riches, right. to rags to riches, you know, <laughs> is a story like we all really like here. You know, it's so like capitalist and consumerist. And and even <laughs> I wanted to mention to you, like, I think as a kid, I loved like the the scenes of shopping, which feel like oh it's just goodness. that like the princess diaries or like any For kind sure. of modern thing you know we like... get great descriptions of her dresses <laughs> do. and the dolls wardrobes but apparently that was i think that francis hodgson bennett was was very into aesthetics and clothes wasn't she and the little old fontroy thing was that she really was into curling her son's hair her son's hair and... like she didn't cut it and she liked his long his yeah. long hair you know and it always reminds me of the thing with like virginia wolf where like she's writing a letter to somebody and she's like now i've i've signed my book advance and i have enough money to buy like new dresses you know yeah. like you don't think of Virginia Woolf as caring that much, but maybe all like lady authors care. I don't know. There, there maybe there are some that don't, but <laughs> <laughs> but the secret vanity of the lady author seems to be a thing. But but I do enjoy. I I like I like I still enjoy like you know the capitalist in me enjoys like the the shopping scenes you know so much and just like the all the buying and the description and so does Miss Minchin by the way like that's how she becomes show pupil because she will look good at like in the clothes at the front of the line yeah you know but you know that scene the scene of like the quote this quasi makeover scene or quasi whatever scene is in so many children's books everything from like Hunger Games to Anne of Green Gables, there's some like significant like where shopping and clothing is going to really like be life altering in some way, which is which is especially interesting in these you know period novels, you know. Mm-hmm. And then of course we get the unmakeover of the uh, very 
mid-birthday party the right. much too short does she have a black, black dress, dress. <laughs> yes and it's... i'm like does it have to be black can't we just find a dress that fits to start with you know yeah. is there is there any other garment option for sarah in this case right than the too tight too short black dress it seems incredibly cruel although i think like i picture her and she looks kind of good in this <laughs> Yeah, you know that Sarah, she just, she's the kind of girl who just pulls these things off. She's pulling it together. (laughs) Yeah. She's got a little four pence on on a little She's got her four pence. Her hair is all down. Right. Her downy dark hair. Like, you know, she, her black tights are described several times, you know. She is the classic. She's, oh, she's ugly, but no, she's actually very beautiful child, which uh, is a, a common, a common trope of, of actually still of children's fiction isn't it um <laughs> of all fiction actually of all fiction <laughs> um although it's interesting because when you think about mary lennox her other kind of parent who is very not good and very genuinely spiky and awful at the start yeah. but also <laughs> i think we're to understand her as not secretly beautiful mary lennox is uh no she's not... basically awful you know yeah. mary lennox is not like secretly nice secretly good generous toward her fellow you know i think she's an interesting character in that sense as well you know um and and it's oh i that book obviously does not go down as simply it just doesn't you know it doesn't it doesn't have um but it is probably the more interesting novel, you know, because it doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, she's playing with, I think, likability. I don't know if, if chronologically it comes before or after Little Princess. It feels like almost uh, an I antidote think, to it. It's, I think it was after. Yeah. I'd need yeah, to double check, but I think it's after. Because I think it was inspired by where she lived with her second husband. There was like a an English sort of country house. And I think the gardens there are where... Well, I read it second and I found it very disappointing as a kid. I was like, where is the shopping? All we're doing is gardening. (laughs) Because I came to it the other way round. And I think a little, it's interesting what you're saying about A Little Princess does feel like a, it does feel more, I mean, this is uh, hopefully not rude to say more American in the Secret secret Garden feels very British. It feels very British. And I think, you know, and obviously like the way she's designing this to be serialized and then to Mm -hmm. be a play and all of its journey, I think maybe contributes it to it having a very like Hollywood feeling like that whole book feels even the kind of way, like the way a, a screenplay is structured, like A story meeting B story. Like, so when you have like the you know the Indian gentleman who is which is quite a cool little irony that he is searching for the girl who turns out to just be next door you know Mm -hmm. and he does all these things to help this girl who is just living next door but that is all very Hollywood you know it's very it doesn't feel um and in a sense you know the secret garden is is not that way you know the the sort of like big movements of that story are much smaller like we Mm -hmm. are we've made a garden we're a little nicer you know maybe (laughs) that kind of thing um i love that as a summary of the of the secret garden (laughs) they struggled to do it they do they they cover a mystery like they figure out kind of the mystery of things and anyway but yeah yeah. and we won't this isn't this is uh not a podcast about the secret garden so we don't need to delve into colin's colin's whole deal right But I mean, it's cool. But like that is like her, like, you know, her kind of like broken people hanging out. Like those people mm. feel much more damaged you know, oh, yes. than, 
and probably much more real, you know, although mm-hmm. Sarah herself feels very real to me in that I still like, again, to just go back to, to bang that same drum, it, you know, <laughs> she does feel like, I feel like her inner life feels convincing to me. For Even sure. Even when people point out the like inconsistencies of it, I don't, I think they're inconsistent in such a way as like, that feels like a person, <laughs> you know? I agree. And I think we do get enough of, we get enough of those moments where she is having to, she wants be rude um or not even rude or angry or slap someone and we yeah we hear that she has that urge and the princessing really like takes it all down you know Mm -hmm. that's the that's the cooler for her you know like how do i how do i how do i princess through life basically but we were talking about becky by the way oh yes of course yeah (laughs) so to to return to becky you know who lives in the attic next door (laughs) and who is just delighted and thrilled to receive sarah's hand-me-down bedding you know so excited (laughs) about that moment for her um you know i feel like there are similarly and this might have to do with its adaptation process and these were by the way not things that ever bothered me as a child you know um but there are things that feel inconsistent maybe in some of like the becky storyline like by the uh i don't know like how illiterate she is for instance like she gives her a pillow that says the many happy returns that seems to be you know in the like in the pincushion but anyway it doesn't suggest that this is somebody who can read necessarily mm-hmm. and then when sarah invites her to be her servant at the end she <laughs> she leaves her a letter you know and becky has no one who is she asking like miss minchin or Mila right. minchin the sister to like read this letter to her i'm like how is she going to get there we know she does so it works out all right in the end but i think a thing to maybe interrogate there is like Sarah's decision to uh, ask her to be a servant. Like, I remember asking my dad about this as a kid. Right. And I said, you know, like, it seems like why doesn't she just to get, why can't she go to school and be like girl next to Sarah, you know, or yeah. something. And my dad, I remember saying to me, well, she wouldn't like that. <laughs> she wants to work for her. <laughs> she wants to work for her living. And that she would feel insulted to not have have employment, you know. So I think he was kind of taking the like, you know, I don't know the remains of the day, like serving <laughs> class sort of situation. He was applying that. And, you know, so I don't know, like, how do you take that? Like, why doesn't, why doesn't she ask her to be, uh, to kind of like be like, she asked her to be like her attendant, basically, mm. you know, I don't know I what mean, her job is going to entail at that point, you know. I guess, I, I mean, I think your dad is probably right in terms of that is the logic of the story, isn't it? That is, I think, probably how Sarah does feel and the idea that someone who is a scullery maid might be... By the way, that is my sole critique at age seven. That is the only thing. <laughs> everything else you said, it comes from like today. But at age seven, I was just like, why? But <laughs> I this happen? That's because I do think we're told that they're friends. And so it's jarring to a child to have her stay in the servant role. And within the logic of the book, she's elevated from scullery maid to sort of more of a lady's maid I suppose you know the yes. idea is that she would be higher up the pecking order looked after but she's still very much a servant which I just it's I think it is just one of those things isn't it that it's jarring to us now and was how 20 years ago but I think the book doesn't really entertain the idea that people can 
fundamentally change class, does it? No, I think in fact, it it, even to the opposite, it's actually a really good point. Everybody's always like that servant. When they're looking at Sarah, they're like, that servant girl doesn't seem like a servant girl. She's not a servant. We can tell. They can tell. They can tell. Like her manners are too good. You know, she has to just be. um, and, And so, yes, it seems like baked into the book is there's no critique of class. You basically are what you're born into, you know. Which is when the book gets real British, you know. <laughs> it does. Uh, right. I think that is a perennial issue. In Wait, British this is not the story and... of Becky, the scullery maid, who somehow, like, you know, learns to read, goes to college, and, you yeah. know, has her whole, has a whole complicated life of rising above. You know, this is Becky, who got a slightly better job where she will be fed <laughs> regularly. Yeah. And she should be happy about it, you know. She and probably I, you know... is really happy about it, to be honest. Yeah. And, you know, I think we can we can entertain the idea that Sarah would have like taught her to read and she's certainly going to have as many meat pies as she wants. But, uh... <laughs> right. Like, you know, at one point there's even a mention that like Becky gets paid some amount by Miss Minchin. There's like a, a brief mention of it. And I was like, really, Becky gets any salary because it doesn't right. feel like she has anything like at all, like no. any money to do anything. It just feels uh... so I was quite surprised at that. But I, I think in a way, like, Obviously, it's unresolved if Becky can read or not. It seems that the in the past we have it. There's a it seems to conclude that she can read. So so maybe she does go into that with those skills. I I don't know, but yeah, it feels like they are really horrible to their servants overall. I'm like, you know, they all probably work better if they were fed better. You know, overall, it doesn't seem to me as a shrewd businesswoman decision for Miss Minchin to like underfeed every single person, like you know, all the young women the whole time. You know, like Sarah will probably do more work if you. If you give her three meals, you know, right? Or whatever. Uh, well, Miss Miss Minchin is not a; she's quite a short-term thinker. I think <laughs> fair to say she she's not really playing the long game, <laughs> right? Like the whole thing, like on the day when like she finds out that you know that Captain Crew is dead and there are no diamond mines, she's like party over. Like you can yeah. hear the record scratch. Immediately, <laughs> yes, <laughs> like, yeah. They like, like get clear that it out. Yeah, like, everybody's over. Like, tell her to go change into that tiny little black frock because it's time yes. for her to, you know, <laughs> like. But yeah, she doesn't. I was like, I think to myself, reading Miss Minchin, I'm like, take a beat, you know, because even the solicitor has to tell her to take a beat. Just calm down a bit, right? Like, please. let's wait like six months, like before, you know, because it, it doesn't seem necessarily practical to like make such sweeping movements when you're not sure on the on the advice of one solicitor, you know, like she like really takes everything he says as completely serious, you know. Right. I mean, Miss Minchin wants to literally put her on the streets within <laughs> he does. He's like, he's like, hold on. I'm like a disreputable lawyer. But let me say that probably you should take a minute yes. and you should put her to work. I've heard she's smart. That would yeah. probably be a better business decision for you. And she's it's like, gonna look she seems... quite bad if you just if you do that, which it yeah. would look quite bad. Yeah. They'd be like, oh, like every single parent in this in this universe is like, no, don't send them to Miss Mentions. She won't even take a moment. Your kid will be like, but what happens is quite bad. I mean, she's turned into like basically a horribly oppressed servant girl who is underfed and wearing one tiny black frock for the whole time. I feel like bathing, by the way, is never mentioned in this story. I started to wonder like the Sarah ever get a chance to take a bath it doesn't seem like that's provided for at all in the story no but it's not a story that's going to tell us anything about bathrooms in right, any this story way. is quite sensual <laughs> but we're not going to know how Sarah, how Sarah smells you know, right I mean bad I think Although, I think bad is the answer 
But do you know what? In the world of the book, I think we all know Sarah doesn't. She's just, she's too good, isn't she? She's just too, she's too princessy, even and when. And she smells like rich people because yeah. that's who she is at heart. Yeah, so even exactly. if she starts like getting dirty, it's still, you're like, you can still smell it on her. That yeah. she's basically very wealthy and well provided for at heart, you know? Yes. Uh, Sarah. She, yeah. I I think, you know what? There's another, what happens to Becky? Is a is another, it's another spin-off uh, novel slash film for the right. next. <laughs> right. What happens with Becky? Does she ever at some point decide, you know, I don't know if I want to be Sarah's lady waiting forever. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. does she, what are Becky's dreams? Like, we don't know what Becky's dreams are. You know, I, I, and I again, I do feel like some of the if there are inconsistencies in Becky, and I guess she's about 18 by the end of the story. It's more probably the multiple adaptations, much more so than mm-hmm. anything else about about the Becky character. I, I think, um, you know, I think she is she is an interesting character because on some level she exists as like the shadow Sarah the whole right. time, you know. Although honestly, how old any character is at any point is I'm very vague on how old. It's very vague. Like you and, have the little girl Lottie and she seems like she's always four. <laughs> Right. And Lavinia, who's so awful, but we're supposed to, I think she's supposed to be like the that blog that we both read kind of thought that she must be sort of 16, 17 when she is bullying like an 11 year old Sarah. Right. Uh, and like, it seems like she really should have awful. left school by then. Right. You know? Why like is she seems... still there? Why? <laughs> she's just there to bully. You know? Do you know what? Probably because she's awful and no one wants to marry her in the logic right. of the book. <laughs> Miss Minchin actually employs her to keep everybody else in line. At the I could school, see that happening, you know? though. I right. could see that happening. Well, actually, and with Sarah, actually, that's why Miss Minchin's kind of only long term plan is, I guess, if I keep her just about alive until she's old enough to be a free teacher, then I right. guess that's the plan. <laughs> Which... I like the the fact that she does. Sarah is still very devoted to her lessons during this whole yes. time of being like a scullery maid. Like we were repeatedly given scenes of her like she has worked all day and then she goes and hits the books mm-hmm. to someday have, I guess, the future as a teacher at Miss Minchin's seminary. Although you would think she could maybe find a job elsewhere as well, you know, like at that point. Right. I don't know. As an adult, you know, when she hits like, you know, teaching age, you know, Jane Eyre age, can she right. find another position as like a governess with which would lead to his own set of problems? You know, yeah. Somewhere else. As, as you've said, the world of the book doesn't exist beyond the last page, does it? No one no, is the ever world thinking the about this in, at any that, point. It's so true what you're saying, because the world of the book feels like it's like the baker shop, the Montmorency's, <laughs> this house next door. One solicitor, one other solicitor, and that's it. You know. Yeah, I mean, but again, I suppose a lot of this is—it's a play. It, it, it's a play, yeah. And that makes you have a street that you have on stage, with right. a bakery and the Montmorencys and the school, and <laughs> that's the stage. That's the set. If we ever leave Miss Minchin's Seminary, you know, and the play, if we're not just like in like the attic room, and you know. And that's it, you know, like the attic room, the school room. Mm-hmm. And these are like, I mean, I'd be curious to know how what the play looks like when it was mm. staged in the 1800s. Like what exactly that script was like, even yeah. what were the parts that we that didn't is, have. I wonder if that is findable. It probably is in the British Library. So it was on Broadway, it said, you know, the so I think it had been in England as well. And then it was transferred to the US. It must have been popular. Obviously, it was popular. Yeah, she was quite a successful playwright. Like her play Esmeralda was like the longest running play on Broadway for a point in history. Like it's 
<laughs> what a life. <laughs> right. I mean, and I always think that because like that there are things, you know, in our time, we think of things as being very, very successful. But I remember at one point I was going back to my apartment when I lived in New York City and there was just like a book sitting there that I never heard of. And on the book, it said over seven million copies sold, you know, <laughs> like that's just like stamp, like the bestseller that took over the world is a book I'd never heard of. And so you think about that, how people can have these like enormous careers, like nobody thinks about like the play Esmeralda anymore, you know, or right. that she was a huge playwright or I know, know, the adult, long list of books novels, she wrote. Didn't she? she wrote like adult where I think novels. I think that's where she started from. You know, yeah. I don't even know because I don't know enough about her, how she experienced a little princess. Like, did she experience it as she was writing for children or did she mm. experience it as I think that like serialized uh, magazine that it appeared in or newspaper was kind of a children's geared thing. So right. I think she probably did. But, you know, in a way, the writing is. um doesn't necessarily, even though it does have like, again, it's pedagogical moments. To me, it feels like it doesn't necessarily feel like it is for children in a certain sense, you know, also. Yeah. Do you know what? I would be lying if I felt like I had a thorough enough understanding of how children's literature kind of was understood when it right. I don't was know. created. Um, I only have... I just, because we we only have what's lasted and it fits in nicely with book when you think about books like Anne of Green Gables and they feel comparable but I I am lacking in understanding of if there was what else kind of padded out children's literature at the time that we just are unaware of or you'd have to really dig to kind of find how it fits within well I know that. it's with some stuff with like Louisa May Alcott that mm. she did not think like much of little women you know what I yes. mean she thought that yes. was for a certain audience and it was not like the good stuff she was doing and so <laughs> yeah. I think weirdly that opinion is must have been must have existed from its earliest form like mm -hmm. the lady who is writing for children is a thing you know that or a prejudice even that one holds against oneself you know yeah well and do you know what it's a big reason that I wanted to do this podcast because I think as a writer for children and the way we talk about children's books it's always something I'm grappling with and I think people I mean you've written for children like how to talk about children's books is something I'm always interested in and how to talk about the books that we write and like you say thinking about who how much we think of a child whilst we're writing and it's easy to put how we feel about it onto people writing a hundred years ago, but uh, it, it's interesting. I mean, it's really awkward too, because I think as uh, a woman who has written for children and also writes for adults, the first thing that happens when you do that is um, people will always call your adult novels, adult novels, <laughs> Yes, <laughs> you know, which is like a super awkward designation, you know? Yeah. And I think whenever anybody wants to say that I'm not a good writer, the first thing they will say is she has written for children. You know, Yikes. as if to, like I'm saying it's like <laughs> yeah. it's very it's true. I think it, there's a uh, as if somehow like that makes me more simple minded or mm. as if that was something I wasn't doing like very consciously at some point or whatever it is. It's like, you know, no, I can see I can see where where she has written for children, you know. And, and so like I think and I think a lot of that has to do with children's literature, but a lot of that has to do with who writes children's literature, which mm -hmm. has been historically like more women than men. Mm -hmm. you know and so some of that is about is is a sexism that is related to all of these all of these things you know just to say like one scene that really resonates with me from the book that we didn't talk about is 
after Miss Minchin realizes that Sarah is in fact rich, the diamond mines are real. Like Amelia, Miss Amelia, her sister really like, you know, you were talking about it, how the book kind of shifts between points of view. I think this is one of the more interesting shifts of point of view. We're kind of like with Miss Minchin and Miss Amelia and Miss Amelia is telling her, you know, basically that um, you were too hard on Sarah. You've made horrible mistakes. I don't stand up for myself enough. And I love that she is able to, again, paint such an inner world for this character that's been basically mm. silly and uninteresting until this point in time yeah you know but it is interesting with those sort of minor characters because often they kind of exist in a very static way the way that they relate to sarah but they do then get these little moments and i i really enjoy that moment with amelia and you think maybe you know i mean we've said the world of the book sort of stops pretty abruptly but if we're imagining after the last page one might hope that maybe Amelia's got through to her a little bit and the girls who are there poor old Ermengarde we haven't even talked about poor old Ermengarde <laughs> and the fat phobia which is uh its own which topic. is a, across both Amelia and Ermengarde you know mm. and I think again it's hard to apply our modern standards to that where again there are far fewer fat people then and it's seen as a character failing of some right. kind you know and I obviously it's it hits in a way that isn't pleasant now, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and also it's not, I will say the flip side of all of that too, is that Sarah is often depicted as too thin, mm -hmm. you know, like they say she's too thin and like they notice when she is like fatter as being positive. So I'm not sure, even though it is coupled with, I think of a, a new, a, just feelings about fat and fatness that are not ones we feel today, you know, at all. Yeah. And I think that, that is another one that right going back right back to the beginning is the conflict between as adults reading it and understanding that and the feeling of giving it to a child who might right. you know, especially a fat child and that judgment and the very direct correlation drawn between fatness and unintelligence and again it's a book that needs to be needs to come with a conversation um for right. and, and young readers like, it seems really um it seems really awful when you hit it, to be honest, today, you know, yeah. like I don't feel um, and I but I also sort of take it to think that, again, she is coming from it from such a different point of view than us. But, yeah, you have to position that, I think, for a child, you know, mm -hmm. um, but I don't think she does see Sarah's thinness as superior. She just sees sadly i mean so i anyway but it, it does have a weird awareness of like women's bodies that is uh yeah interesting we got a I lot noticed even in my that. own writing like that my some of my earlier novels ah. i i actually held more ungenerous thoughts about some of these things because i had to go through one of my earlier novels to prepare it for an audio version and i was right. like i wish i had not i think i have done some of that even you know it's like one of and, and and so i think it's just again it's hard to know like how Francis felt about Francis mm. Hodgson Burnett felt about any of those things, you know? Um, yes. And so Sarah is, is said she's too thin and Mary Lennox, who is, is similarly like she's too thin at the start. And that is also, that's then a correlation drawn with her like awfulness. And as she gets, you know, that country food and she puts on weight, that's a good thing. And it but apparently it's so just like a because really there's only like specific... one weight you can yeah. be. Yeah. <laughs> to be like somebody that other people will like and respond yeah. to well. You know, it's but very I mean... un it's as unforgiving as ever. There's like that's just, you know, yeah. <laughs> just like Less you are only too thin or too fat. Yeah. Yeah. There's an extremely <laughs> narrow window 
uh, being just right, you yeah. know, for for other people to enjoy. Mm. Which is, and so obviously she is a part of that system as well. It's not like we. It's 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 uh, it's said so casually some of these things that it's you can tell she's not out to like you know tear apart fat people. It's just something. It's it's a belief she holds that is, you know part of her culture and time and society mm -hmm. that is not so dissimilar from, I think, beliefs that many people still hold, you know? Right. It's just presented in a much more matter-of-factly way than perhaps people would do it these days. No, it's it's, it's horrible, like, especially with the Ermengarde character, you know? <laughs> like, that. really, it's seen as, like, she is... That she's fat and stupid seems to be the two things that, Right, you and know, they just... We get told that so much you're like oh, here is fat stupid Ermengarde coming to talk to Sarah and you're like oh please stop and there's part of you that's like who is saying this because right. we are kind of in Sarah's close point of view I'm like does, is, does Sarah think we are friends like despite the facts like does she think this is part of her princess behavior that like I'm managing to befriend this this poor fat stupid like girl you know I don't that's know a good what, question, how we're supposed to take it you because know Sarah's behavior doesn't necessarily imply that does it there doesn't seem to be a sense well, there is a little bit of pity, but that seems to be more rooted in the way she's treated by others. And, well, yeah, no, it's a good, but again, it comes back to that whole perspective thing. It's sometimes super unclear who, whose perspective we're getting. <laughs> it's funny, my book has illustrations in it, and it's like, Urban Guard looks pretty normal body weight to me, you I mean, know? Same here, yeah. Mine, I'm not sure if they're the same ones minor older ones minor are, older ones as well but she does not seem like she is like morbidly obese or absolutely. in any way that this would be impacting her life in a, in yeah a serious absolutely manner. no same here yeah same with the my edition so yes a narrow a narrow window uh in uh <laughs> of appropriate well i remember seeing this like period uh photographs of a like of carnival acts and then there was a picture of like the fat woman and it was like, you know, who's in the carnival. And I was like, wow, she's really not that big. You know, yeah. she seems she kind of looks like average body weight woman, you know, mm -hmm. but like people used to go to a carnival to see this, like this woman. Lord. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's anyway. But so that is an interesting aspect yeah. of of it as well. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been an interesting one to revisit. It sits it sits strangely coming to it. but. I think it is a book that if you have that childhood relationship with it, you can meet it just as it is. If you're an adult, I think, who is able to also hold the contextual information in your head. I mean, I think probably like it does, you know, again, it requires, as you're saying, you can't read it, this book with a child you have to read it with the child I mean, yes. you have to have a discussion where you say these are some things we should maybe talk about about like what it was writing in the late 1800s and early mm -hmm. 1900s versus what it is writing today and some values we hold but I think again that like to go back to like what we were talking about in the beginning that can be said of any book you mm -hmm. know you can't I think hold authors of any period to you know to replace your own morals you know I think all books should be interrogated, honestly, you know, For sure. but, but that doesn't mean they should be told you can't exist because you have said things that don't align with my value system mm -hmm. in 2023, you know, mm -hmm. or my even presuming a book that's contemporary. And that's yeah. something I think about when I read it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for getting into it uh, with me. I have absolutely loved uh, chatting about it. 
it's it's an interesting one to it's an interesting one to come back to but it's one I think fundamentally still really enjoyed rereading yeah it's still just a very good read Mm -hmm. in the end you know I think it's everything I want from a children's book and it's like it's a little bit magical shopping (laughs) and a great (laughs) character you know (laughs) at its core yeah awesome thank you so much thank Uh, you so much Anna it's been lovely to chat Thanks so much for listening to Book Wandering and you can find out more information about Gabrielle and what we talked about below. And you can buy any or all of the books we chatted about via mybookshop.org page. If you enjoyed the episode, then spreading the word will be greatly appreciated by sharing it online, telling your friends or leaving a review. You can find me at Case for Books on social media or you can email me at annajamesauthor at gmail.com. Podcast is produced by Adam Collier with artwork by Hester Kitchen. And next week, I'll be chatting to Nikesh Chukla about Spider-Man. So do come back next week and listen. And until then, happy book wandering. Thank you.